Hello, I'm Rob Hirschfeld, CEO and co-founder of RackN and your host for the Cloud 2030 podcast. In this episode, we dive into the dynamics of open source projects and monetization, specifically starting around the uh, often discussed Terraform and OpenTofu split. But before you decide you've already heard too much about that topic, and I agree it is one that we love to chew over and uh, potentially overanalyze, this topic is different. We go into how ecosystems are built, both in open and proprietary and cloud systems, and then look at sort of a historical perspective on what makes a project successful from an ecosystem perspective, why some projects work like that and why some projects don't. Uh, overall, I think we, we uh, have a nice new uh, take on some of the dynamics going on in the open source communities um, through the lens of what happened with open uh, tofu and Terraform more broadly. So check it out. I know you will enjoy the discussion. Yeah. I'm trying to think if there was, I thought there was some tofu news or some, some industry buzz that, um, was it perhaps the, uh, um, the open letter that, uh, the HashiCorp CEO, Ah, uh, that was what it was. Yeah, there was it was tofu related. The Silicon Valley is open source is dead. <laughs> Something on this. I'm going to throw that one on Thursday also, but uh, I'm happy to hear what you think about it. Ah, oh, goodness. Well, um, I mean, it, it's it's a very impartial statement to claim that. Open source is taking hard work of other people and selling it for less. When essentially that's what the the Terraform ecosystem built. Um, I they definitely got the benefit of the the open source model. Um, yeah. It, I have a little bit of trouble from that perspective, but do you? I mean, I, I'm not. I'm not gonna lie, yeah. or, or I'm, I'm not gonna tiptoe on it. It is difficult to be profitable with an open source model. Yes, but as has been shown many times already, um, open source is indubitably better at generating and maintaining a loyal community. That's an interesting... I, I agree with your comment. Um, although, I mean, oh, Amazon, VMware, right? there's some companies that have built Oracle. Um <laughs> Oracle might be the best example because um, I don't. There's a lot of people who don't like it, but there's plenty of people who are either stuck or even happily stuck in those communities. Um, but I think they're. I think they have a, a fundamentally different feel to them. Is the challenge? 
That's I'm wearing my OpenStack shirt, by the way. Uh -huh. Um, yeah, I mean, historically, open source has, or at least purely open source maintained products have been viewed as a risk by the enterprise because of a uh, potential lack of support, particularly when it comes to escalations and hyper IT um, fixes. And is that, do you feel like that's, um, to some extent, counterbalanced by the uh, protection from a license and a market exit perspective? Not really. No, I, I, hmm. I mean, a, a licensed product and, and a supported product, um, I mean, a supported product does, does not necessarily have to be closed source. There's lots of examples of open source mm. products where support is offered in addition to just software. Right. Definitely. Well, oh boy, there's so many dimensions here because there's a lot of, there's plenty of those that are um, still single vendor open source. And so if you want support, right, I mean, they're, they're, it's this is the funny thing about about Terraform is that it's it's pretty rare for us to get to a point where you have such significant market penetration. You have a secondary market created around the product, but you know none of those companies that were monetizing Terraform could actually submit. Could, you know, actually have their own version of it. Like, I, does that? I can I can actually be very specific. There's I don't I don't think anybody create patched Terraform outside of HashiCorp and then redistributed the binary as a as a patch. If they had, then the the fork would have happened even more easily or faster than it did. I don't think that until Open for anyone saw the need to do it. But, and that's incredible. Yeah. Right. Because and, and, that means that's that means the power of open source too. But, but, go ahead. Because why fork a product and then spend the time maintaining a completely separate product yourself when you can just contribute to the upstream product, hmm. have everyone gain the benefit of your patches, and vice versa, encourage other people to uh, provide their own patches or possibly even uh, provide future fixes to patches that you've submitted. It, but one of the th complaints I heard before the fork was that Terraform was not taking patches and fixes from the community by and large. They were they were they were controlling what made you know pretty carefully what made it into Terraform, and people were complaining that there weren't enough Terraform engineers on the on the on the HashiCorp side. Um, and the the brilliance of the Terraform model was that the providers had separate life cycles and release cycles so that somebody could move very quickly for their providers without Terraform having to iterate, you know, um, but, and I'm thinking of CentOS here also because CentOS, you know, when, once all those forks happened, they had to build their own build infrastructure and 
we've we've had projects like Terraform and and CentOS where one vendor um, more or less was responsible for the maintenance and distribute you know compiling and distribution of the the binaries. I, th- I think in this case, the better parallelism would be Docker. Hmm. Okay. Um, because I, again, as, as I mentioned, the, the, there's a divide between the Terraform binaries and the Terraform registry. So the providers kept updating. They, they kept working around the shortcomings of, of Terraform that Apache Corp refused to patch or, 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 or update. And um, it it wasn't the same case with with, with Docker where, where where the Docker Corporation was not accepting patches, but in a, in a similar fashion, Docker Hub was a separate ecosystem from the Docker binaries. Like he look look, look at it right now, like Kubernetes is no longer uses Docker Shim, so most people are are, are using ContainerD or Creo or. Uh, they are now that was but that took a lot of effort to um break away from from the whole docker piece and then the whole yeah. docker hub was so embedded in in these systems that we had to have it was it was really hard to build alternate registries yeah but but docker, docker hub is still around as an ecosystem yes so so yeah so that, that does as I said, like the, the life cycle of the two is independent now, or well, mostly independent. <laughs> I, I mean, I, I guess if, yeah. if if you were to come out with OCI v two, then that would be a very closely tied life life cycle change. But apart from that, um, yeah. patches to the binary don't don't affect um, the ecosystem largely, as long as they're backwards compatible, which Mm-hmm. Like a year ago, HashiCorp had committed to that, where they were saying, "Okay, like <laughs> if if you're on one version one X, then all of the changes are all of the future patches are going to continue being backwards compatible with what you're doing." Um, they they are introducing new features, but they're not breaking old ones, at least on again on one X. Um, but yeah, it's, it's again, it, it highlights that the, what attracted people to Terraform was, wasn't so much the binary, which, which could have been replaced and, and, and it's being replaced now with, with OpenTOEFL, but it is the ecosystem of contributions of value added around the tool itself that that provides the the attractiveness to the community. Yeah. No, those are are a combination. Um, And to me, it's interesting. Do you think, taking us on a slightly different path, but I think Docker, actually Linux, the way you're describing it with the ecosystem, and Terraform all had um, a relatively decoupled ecosystem. You had the tool, 
And then you had a, a much, you know, you had the ecosystem of people building componentry for that, that tool. It's an interesting question to me of, you know, that model open source helps build that people are more confident contributing into those ecosystems when there's an open source piece around it. Although I, I mean, Amazon's been able to create a marketplace and, and, you know, people building AMIs and all the cloud vendors have marketplaces where they've been able to, um, it's not the same though where they have the degree of engagement. Am I making sense? Do you see see where the parallel I'm trying to draw? A little bit less so with the Amazon side, but um, like I I have a hunch as to where you're going, but um, before I I jump to conclusions, maybe you would want to (laughs) elaborate. I'm looking to see if there's a pattern for... um, because right, I'm going back to the HashiCorp CEO, you know, saying innovation is you know innovation is dead or open source is dead, whatever. Um, <laughs> um, and I'm looking to see the, this pattern of what made you know sort of the Terraform um, uh, ecosystem grow so effectively. Um, because people didn't have to, if, if you'd had to modify Terraform a whole bunch, this is what all of the original um, generations of cloud interface platforms did. If you if you wanted to get a new cloud interface in, you by and large had to contribute something back to the project. For Terraform, you you could download Terraform. Anybody could download Terraform. And then you'd pull in the providers. Most of the, the churn and the work was in the provider libraries, and, and Terraform was relatively preserved, um, protected from it. So we had we created an ecosystem effect, which you're describing. For Amazon uh, or any vendor, I'm looking for, I'm, I'm using them as a vendored example. Um, nobody cares that it's open or not. They're like, well, I can go and download and use my or go to the marketplace and download and use do software. Um, and the fact that it's a vendored ecosystem doesn't seem to be that big of a barrier. Hmm. Yeah. Not making not, not, not clicking. Yeah. Um I I think it It comes down to the difference between the inception of these ecosystems. Amazon never plays itself as an open source platform. So it's not surprising that Mm. they're continue to uh, using Closed source or proprietary or, or, or just private APIs. Um, although they, the, the predictable nature of their, of their APIs, at least 
made it possible for value-added open source tools to take advantage of it in a way that did not break the open source license model and in turn allowed Amazon to adopt and embrace those same, same tools once they became popular. HashiCorp, on the other hand, did the other way around. They, they started with an open source platform and community and and now they're they're switching to a closed source which to many collaborators and, and advocates feels like they're doing a rock pull. Agree with that. I mean and and, and again like open tool for being adopted by the CNCF shows that there is <laughs> There's a big enough movement behind wanting to keep the ecosystem open. Uh, and, and even though the HashiCorp CEO um, claims that enterprises come in and say, like, yeah, we should have done it sooner, uh, and, and, and says it is a, it helps us a risk mitigation strategy. I don't buy it. In fact, in, in this day and age, an open source product becoming closed sourced is by many viewed as a much riskier model because lately there has been a trend in closed source systems to remove features, which is something that just cannot happen in what? open sources. What are you thinking of? Interesting. To like to like to to gate features or even remove features. Oh. Like for for example, uh, there, there there's various um, home security cameras services. Ah, okay. Which, which one was it? Ufi or Eero? Um, that were that literally removed capabilities from their system and left people high and dry. Um, after they had yes. sunk their, 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 their money into it. Um, that's, that's true. Yeah. The, there's, there's, there, I mean, there are a lot of, the, this is one of the things I think there are SASs that um, will, you know, D uh, will remove capabilities if they're, if they're support expensive or they're not, not market majority. Yeah. Um, and sometimes they don't bother to even put them under a, you could pay more for it. Um, hmm. so, so while a, so I, I, so I think that the, the companies who are applauding the HashiCorp switch to closed source do it because they believe it's going to give them a chance to get priority support. Um, however, again, I okay. see it as a, I say, like net loss in, in, in that, yeah, maybe you do gain some priority support, but you lose 
a lot of the um what's the word um you, you, you lose the the you lose a sense of trust in the continuity of the product if if you're the users outside of the domains that they're it's like well e e even inside okay. the domain like like on, on HashiCorp in particular that they're, they're they're bad with this okay with for example like you, you pay for a vault enterprise license great you get support but come renewal of the license suddenly it's much more expensive because they changed how they count the users yeah well yes you can continue paying and continue getting the support but it no longer becomes affordable so yeah, that's true so you effectively have to make the choice of um sink more money into it or consider an alternative maybe the open source license or maybe a different product if you need some governance on it um and that's additional costs again to switch away from it thinking through but that's i mean this is this is always the danger with a vendor product in general is that you <laughs> and this is why open source is supposed to be attractive is that you you know if you don't like your kubernetes vendor you, you know you don't like red hat you could switch to um vmware yes. or somebody else yeah um, uh, and the vendors are busy building um ancillary components that make their version um much harder to <laughs> switch away from which is you know the, the expected behavior i'm laughing but it's that that's that's the it's a pros and, you know pros and cons of how that stuff works um yeah that, i mean to the like this day i consider the biggest value of open source not being the like the cost to acquire or, or implement the 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 tool because in many like in many cases yes it, it is free and open source mm -hmm. but even if it's not free but still open source you get the feature continuity and when you're maintaining a system that is worth a lot more Interesting. So what, why, what fell apart with Hashi? Uh, I mean, because in a lot of cases, what you're describing, I think they were, they were doing pretty well. Uh, a C-suite management changed, but oh. I don't remember who. Okay. Yeah, like maybe well, they, they change business direction. Maybe that they're, they're hiding some financial problem that we're not privy to. 
Didn't they just go public also? Well, that was a couple of years ago, wasn't it? Yeah. The the so one of the things that happened in the past couple of years is is that the Fed started raising interest rates because oh no, inflation, we have to get it under control, and all of the public corporations had to have layoffs. Had to, and no matter whether they were doing fine or not, everybody had to have a layoff, especially if they're public. Mm. So once they're public, they they are at the whims of the economists, and uh, the the me different me too's. It's follow follow the gangs. So uh, between new C-suite management and the wonderful rules of how you have to be responsible. It's like give the CEO a bonus and lay off people. Uh, So that could easily explain 60 to 80% of what went on at HashiCorp about this stuff. You can certainly explain it, yes. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I, I have my own opinions about what it means for a company to 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 go public, and on, on hardly any of that is is a good opinion. But um, <laughs> I'll spare you that because, again, it's an opinion, not not, not, <laughs> not a fact. Um, Yeah, uh, whatever it was that caused the decision to to switch to a uh, non OSS license for, for not not only the not only Terraform but also to switch the terms and conditions of the use of their registry. Yes, and and uh, I mean they're 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 cleaning cleaning up. Yeah. But I like this has I, I I don't think they they properly gauged how how much it meant for the community for the tooling to be open source. And and right now people are still using Terraform. Uh, either at either as the tool itself. Or, or by name, uh, because the community is still switching over the, the terminology. Like if you're lo- if you're going to look for reference material, you're going to search for Terraform material. You're not open to for material, right? Because yeah. there's a lot more publications around it. This might actually change in the future. Like I, I myself, like in social media, have been starting to use both terms concurrently. Mm-hmm. To indicate that, well, I'm open to discussion on on on, on both both ends. Um, but my goal is in the future to like, once I uh, convince once once I fully switch over my own tooling to Open Tofu, which um, the only barrier for me is that for, for that is making sure that. My registries are like on, on the on the providers are still accessible. 
Um, like I, I have no loyalty to Terraform, the binary itself. It it serves a purpose and and it and it does a and it and it fulfills that purpose better than alternatives. However, right. um, if Terraform is going to do a rug pull, and, and again, my my confidence in it not doing a rug pull is much lower now, then I have no compunction. Then there's there's the, the there is definitely a you know at least a 12 month cycle before confidence is rebuilt. But uh, for that in this case I I don't think confidence can can be rebuilt. I I'll tell you our experience from open source versus proprietary user cases and this has been consistent when I've asked enterprises about um Terraform and the the license change. Most of the enterprises I talk to don't aren't that upset because they're not impacted. Their use is not impacted. And if they were using one of the competitors, the competitors are responsible for fixing it, which they're doing. And so most of most of the enterprises, you know, as long as the plans are compatible, and I, I would say even I'm not even sure that's a requirement. Um, as long as the plans are mostly compatible or the skills mostly transfer, then they'll use Terraform in the places where it's convenient or already in use. And if they bring in, you know, another Terraform orchestrator, then they'll they're going to assume that thing has worked out its license issues, and they'll they'll use that. And it it could be that. You know, and that's actually one of the things that's interesting. I don't know that that many people, if, you know, if you're, especially if you're using an orchestrator, if you're downloading, actually, I'm going to go further than this. If you're downloading Terraform and just using it to do Terraform-y stuff, it doesn't matter until Tofu gets better in some way, docs, provider, something to switch. And if you're using a wrapper, a taco, on top of it, you're using the taco. You're not. You you don't really care if it's Terraform or Tofu. You're you're going to look up. You you want the providers to work, and you want the um, DSL to be there and Docs to be there. But you you might not care. And you might not care that it's not open as long as it has an eco. You know, it has the provider ecosystem now. I don't think they would have built the provider ecosystem without it being open. Um, maybe they could have because that's that. And there was my point. <laughs> now I'm full circle. <laughs> my point was it, you don't have to have, it helps, but you don't have to have an open platform to build a, a vibrant ecosystem in that, in that thing, as long as there's a utility for people working in the provider, building things into the ecosystem. Um and so I, there was a degree of where Terraform was free, and it created a whole bunch of, u- of use. Um, I, I actually, I'm not, I, I could, I'm not sure the openness made that much of a difference. Free definitely did. 
Yeah. Um, do you, now do you see where my argument was going? I know, sorry, it took me 15 extra minutes to get there. Yeah, I mean, I, I see your argument. And if Terraform was, had started out as free but not opened, um, it might have, or it, it could have achieved the same success as it, it had, as it has. Mm -hmm. Um, however, I, I think that we are underestimating, um, how much it, uh, having been open impacted the growth of the ecosystem. Yeah. Um, and I, I, I suspect that, like maybe in a year, maybe two years, whenever it, it happens, um, like feature-wise, yes, Terraform and OpenTofu might drift. Yeah. But I, I also suspect that the um, the ecosystem around Terraform might start deteriorating if um and, and in, in particular the this ecosystem around open tofu um would see a faster update cycle the right. the one thing that would likely be a, a factor that impacts this is how it's, it's whether the cloud providers will um, will will pick any one or the other. Right now, there, there is some strong integration happening with, with Terraform. In some cases, two way, like for example, Google um, starting to provide options for uh, giving you Terraform code snippets of their console. Um, but mm -hmm. as far as their providers go, Google just publishes them in their, like in, in their GitHub repositories. That's right. And, and HashiCorp is the one who just re, like bundles them up and, and, and packages them in, in their registry. It's, it's really just a distribution model. Mm -hmm. yeah. It's just, a, it's just a package and distribution It's not even a, there's no vetting. Although um, I know that there there there's some vetting that goes on, but I, I suspect it's pretty minimal. It, it, it is perspective. minimal, and and it, and it might also well be that we will start seeing um, some um, we will start seeing some uh, more projects hosting their own registries. And not publishing their providers straight to the Terraform public registry anymore. So essentially, what's happening with the Fediverse, but for for providers, the biggest challenge uh, to that is 
how to build trust in the registries. Yeah. However, as a community, we're now much better suited at building trust in distributed registries because we have source bills of material. We we have attestations. We have a, a whole framework around around that. Mm-hmm. Um. So and and we have and we have well containers sort of undermine some of what you're describing, but conceivably yeah. you could you could distribute a container that has the build infrastructure for a. You know, the Terraform providers that you want to use. Yeah. Um, so, so the the um, the benefit and stability of having a centralized provider or, or distribution system or a centralized registry is not as great as it was a couple of years ago. And, and in turn, it means that it is much much less of um uh of a strength of a for, for a company than it was then And I just want to say that in the early days, Terraform would not have been able to get off the ground if they had been closed. Because there were just all sorts of folks running with with Terraform scissors. (laughs) And that's what stabilized Terraform and drove it to what the the folks using it needed as opposed to a company guessing what you know being focused on their largest uh users and whatnot and developing for for those rather than the community at large so i remember terraform being something where people were going oh wow let's give this a try and and then every people filling the gaps like crazy so, and you can't do that as a small company, and it's really hard to do that as a large company. Uh, you need the community to make it happen, and you need the com- community enthusiasm to make it happen. So, now that that it's reached a point where it's more mature, pulling back is something that they can do, especially with uh, yeah. control of the registry, but it never would have gotten as big as it did without a, an open community. Yeah. I always saw Terraform as just being the the gateway drug to other HashiCorp commercial offerings yeah. because it had that direct integration like with Vault, with Packer, with Payground. The, the the challenge is I don't I don't think that um, we got to a point where they were actually building and this is what we were expecting is that it was um, all, any of these products was part of a bigger suite um, and that there'd be some blocking innovation. This is like one of my favorite questions here <laughs> is 
why didn't this happen to Ansible? <laughs> like, like well, because Ansible is very similar. They, they tried though, okay. not with with Ansible Core, but with Ansible Galaxy, and with Ansible Tower. Hmm. Um. Ansible Tower. I mean, it started out as a free uh, product. Then it it went open source and, and but licensed. But there there was there was not enough interest in in using it. And, and now and then they forked it, or that then they split AWX, which was then the the upstream version of Ansible Tower, and and now. Both are both are unified again, and, and it's just again the, the the licensing didn't happen on that. Um, the Ansible Galaxy, there is some churn happening uh, now, where where it's being reworked, and um, hmm. um, yet to be seen how how that will end up, but. Um, Certainly, the the changes happening with Ansible now are on on the super on the super uh, on the surface that that they're not worrisome, but because because they're now beholden to IBM. I am concerned because IBM does not have a good track record at maintaining open source systems. Well, and no, they don't. <laughs> I, I would I would argue that even even Red Hat has they have a they have a very specific way they maintain an open source project. Yep. Um, yeah, uh, and there is a big difference IBM. between pre-IBM Red Hat and post-IBM Red Hat. Yes. But, but this is part of like Ansible Galaxy, and maybe it's because Terraform's providers were compiled. This is the same, this is some of what's going through. If you wanted to change the DSL for Ansible, you pretty much had to make a patch to Ansible to change the DSL. So it was not particularly easy to go in and say, oh, I'm going to do a whole bunch of functionality for uh, Amazon or Google or Switch or something like that without modifying the DSL to do that. Although I, I think it got better because I know that there's a, there's a library of extensions for Switches specifically, um, but it still didn't, it didn't create the critical mass that... Terraform had from a plugins perspective and Galaxy, what I saw with Galaxy is that people submitted almost entirely duplicative um, playbooks. And then yeah. when they did do playbooks, it was very hard to like modify a playbook in a, in a useful, I'm, I'm thinking about the Kubernetes one, um, Kubespray. Yeah. And right. That thing became a, a giant, it's a huge playbook with required a ton of maintenance and impossible to test all the permutations. Um, and it was because the playbook is what you distributed. It was very hard to version that. 
and patch it and do changes to it. Whereas the provider model actually is is pretty clean from that perspective. You can fix a provider without bra- breaking, hopefully, without breaking the plans. Um, but nobody nobody created a real alternative to Ansible Tower, and even Ansible Tower was not. Like the tacos, people are like, oh, I actually need a Terraform orchestrator. I haven't seen the same drive to say I need an Ansible orchestrator, which is weird to me because I think people do. <laughs> people have been looking for that. But the, the truth is that for the people who use Ansible and who are looking for an orchestrator, they typically end up using Grundeck and it's good enough for them. Mm. Like, because Ansible. Yeah. Or the, the way Ansible is typically used is as a scripting language with a DSL for infrastructure or, or for configurations. So you don't really need more than that. Or particularly when, when you use Ansible as a push model, it's like, okay, like I just need to run Ansible with these specific inventories um, on a regular basis or on, on demand. So you do it on, in your CICD or if you or if you just want to run it like ad hoc, you use Rundeck. And, and, and that is what Ansible mm. Tower was running against. It's like, sure, it has all of the, these nice integrations, but nobody was using it. Because they could just run it from the command line. And, and if you can run it from the command line, you, you can just well, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you, actually, running Ansible from a service, because it's not designed for that, I would, I would actually say the same thing is true with Terraform, but Ansible even more so. It's, it's pretty intensive to run Ansible um, as a service. Yes. Um, it requires a lot of processing. It requires a lot of network. It requires a lot of supervision because of the way it runs. Um, and then the state information, it doesn't actually, it's not particularly stateful. It's not, no. Um, and, and, and that is, uh, as, as much as I hate having to maintain state, it, it's what ends up um ended up being Terraform's uh, edge or, or Ansible in that it could not only mm. make sure that the configuration it wants to currently manage is the one that gets applied so that the desired, that the desired state gets reflected in the, in the current state, but also that it allowed you to clean up. So if you remove something from the desired, yeah. from your desired state, it gets removed from the current state as well. In Ansible, it just gets offered. And that's right. Well, one's provisioning, one's configuration. So there is a, there is a, you know, there's a, an Ansible was designed, there was an idempotent argument for configuration states, which is, I don't need to know what I did. I just need to reassert. Exactly. (laughs) Um, where with provisioning, that's never been an option, right? Provisioning is create. If you create, you better be ready to destroy. Yeah, like they they, they are in separate playing fields. Although although there there is yeah. some overlap, but Ansible is still 
much better at making sure that the configuration is consistent uh, across your across your inventory. And, and Terraform is still better at making sure your inventory is what you want it to be. Yeah. No, well, and maintaining that inventory is super, be super tricky. It's it, it's amazing to me how much these these bits and pieces went. I I actually. Um, one of the things that I think holds Ansible back um, is the is the lack of curation and opinion on how the playbooks are designed, and and that to, that to me is actually um, it's you know from from what we do our part of our perspective when we looked at Ansible and Galaxy was the lack of curation meant that our that people using Ansible were constantly reinventing. The ways to do things, even though they were mostly the same, they kept making copies. Terraform did a better job with that, but I, I actually I think Terra, HashiCorp had to do a lot of curation on providers up until you know just before they went public. Most of the providers were still, especially the major ones, were all HashiCorp maintained, um, and they were yeah. building providers as a service um, for for. People. They they didn't really escape that, you know, write your own provider until um when they went when they got to a dot zero dot one three, I think, when they is when they rewrote how the providers um interface. Um like they 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 improved that pretty significantly. And I, I know other people were writing providers, but we had tried to write providers before that, and it was um it was hard. There weren't a lot of standards. It was hard to get them published. And, and they were doing a degree of curation to their credit and frustration to me, but their credit, um, that curation actually was a big part of what made Terraform work behind the scenes. Um, all right. I, we're about five minutes off. This was, I, this is a fun conversation to have because I love digging into what, what these things are going. I would I would take five minutes and talk about what we meant by getting tactical on governance so that when we come, there's no meeting next week, I'm traveling, um, but getting tactical on governance. And then, oh, I have an idea for, for further topics I want to float by people before I start doing it. Um, I The thing I would be covering in this, um, boy, is... is um, uh, like endpoint scanning uh, for machines, um, uh, the compliance audit systems, uh, know your know your infrastructure. Um, um. Inventory maintenance. Ability to patch. Go ahead. If we're talking about governance, um, going to need to talk also about documentation and change management. Okay. And um, like you, you already mentioned uh, auditing and, and, and compliance, uh, yeah. but um, also. Uh, 
what to do when you find a non-compliant system. Uh, remediation. Yeah, remediation, correct. Cool. All right. That is plenty to get us seated for next time. So I don't just go, ah. Um, I, the, I, I think this was a meaningful conversation about Terraform and um, and the, the market in general. Um, I also feel like at the moment that's a little bit, of, it's it's fun, but it's a little bit of cotton candy. Um, so it's it's not as like, I, I'd love to sink, sink my teeth into something like that. I um, Internally for RackN, one of the things that I've been raising is that we need to train people not just on how RackN works, but we need to have more, it's actually related to the conversation, more ancillary material to support people um, for skills that they don't have or they would like um, refreshers on. So I put together a list, I think it's up to 15 um, ops-related skills, um, how things work, how to do it type of thing, everything from like basics of like DHCP and, and Pixie Boot um, to... Um, like, you know, creating certificates, out-of-band management, like, um, and I would, I would happily use this time to have discussions about that. And then, you know, I'll, I'll turn those into technical blog posts. A lot of what we talk about is not going to make it in, in there, but, you know, being able to come back and say, yeah, we, let's talk about DNS and DNS infrastructure. I, I'd probably pull some rack end people in, um, to provide that expertise and then um you know and then but but that would be you know <laughs> almost a half year of content um of going through and doing some of those deeper dive conversations does that sound interesting we can we can i'll pull together the list for a future session and then we can we can go yeah it, it does sound uh appealing and uh since you mentioned dns uh, well, just have to warn you that uh, I would likely be also be steering the conversation towards the the most recent um, DNS related features in uh, in Firefox and uh, Cloudflare. Cool. Okay. Uh, Firefox has been a pain in the butt of recently of recent. <laughs> um, so the other thing that that would provide Rob is. Um, that's a wonderful uh, uh, way to put together a training course by using this group in some way as a, an alpha beta of you know, what, what's good and what's not and what's uh, useful. Because you could just literally, you, you could put together a whole training course that you just take take on the road to your customers. <laughs> That's well, that's part of what what I'm recognizing is that we, you know, we need to have ways to help people get up to speed with this stuff. And yeah, train, you know, doing it as a training course would be interesting. I'm hoping to build some of it as just like videos or internet, internet content that that people can have. Cause it's the resistance we get, Rocky, is when when we turn it into a like a saleable class. Um it be, it feels like a distraction, but when people don't know this stuff, um, then it then it's a problem on the other side. So, 
I keep bouncing back and forth between here's a long list of things we we need everybody to understand and let's talk, let's write it down and document it and make it public. <laughs> and, and the, well, if that's the case, why don't we train them? And then we look at each other and we're like, we're not a training company. Um, and maybe, maybe we'll find but a partner for you, that. You know, um, some folks who could provide that training on the side. I mean, uh, hmm. Starmer and his that's brother, true. the two Starmers. Let me let me see where 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 it goes from that perspective. That that would make sense. I, the conversations usually end up being, "Can you provide back end training?" Um, and not, you know, can we just push people to digital rebar or not um, uh, Linux Linux ops, just general ops training? Yeah. I think our, the other I think thing is, the market is, needs it desperately. Yeah. Yeah, and Julia Evans has a lot of tutorials. She she does all those little uh, Let me see. books or uh, sessions that explain all that stuff. So that might be something. And I did want to mention, if it hasn't been mentioned or not, the uh, the uh, attacks on a, on security companies, including One Password, where they. Uh, Tried to get in through the uh, customer support system. Oh dear. Huh. Well, the, the, that was that was um, Octa. That, that was Octa being compromised, right? And then oh, one password um, in, in their in their audit, uh, finding that uh, the Octa support or the that that through the Octa compromise. Uh, someone tried to leverage the internal authentication in one password to um, um, to essentially access their systems. Well, it wasn't just one password. There's another security uh, company that did that too also, and they went through the connection between Okta support and those companies. So the Okta support uh, account was uh, the the point of attack essentially into the security company. So they yeah. were definitely whoever did it was definitely targeting uh, security companies. Didn't get anywhere with either of them, but <laughs> but they tried. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and and they did compromise Okta. <laughs> yeah, which. It's not the first time, so <laughs> and it won't be I, the last I, I, I mean, time. In my mind, Okta is in the is these days in the same playing field as LastPass, aka why you're still using oh. it. Yeah, no, we we had to migrate away from that. Okay, um, and thank you for the tip on uh, Julia Evans. That was good. Yeah, that you're welcome. Thank you. All right, everybody. Till next time. Thanks. Next and not next week. So I'll I'll cancel. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you. Cheers. So we do enjoy this exact conversation, and I wish I could promise that we were going to put it all to bed, but we're not. Uh, we will keep going back to and digging into this evolving story thinking about open source versus proprietary tech 
and how to market, how to use, how to sustain technologies. That's what our group is about. Uh, if you are interested in this and having these types of discussions, please join us. We would love to have your opinions and, and hear what you have to say at the 2030.cloud. You can see our schedule. Uh, we are going to shift this group into some technical, deeper technical topics. Um, on That's our Tuesday afternoon sessions. If you're interested in much broader strategy and AI uh, and uh, sort of the long view of, of cloud and infrastructure, please join us on Thursdays. Uh, that is where you can hear those other topics where we, we, talk, we take on the big, big issues of the day. Thank you for listening to the Cloud 2030 podcast. It is sponsored by RackN, where we are really working to build a community of people who are using and thinking about infrastructure differently, because that's what RackN does. We write software that helps put uh, operators back in control of distributed infrastructure, really thinking about how things should be run and building software that makes that possible. If this is interesting to you, uh, please try out the software. We would love to get your opinion and, and, and hear how you think this could transform infrastructure more broadly. Or just keep enjoying the podcast and coming to the uh, discussions and you know laying out your thoughts and how you see the future unfolding. It's all part of building a better infrastructure operations community. Thank you.